Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. I want to make a reminder about feedback. You guys have done a great job of sending in questions. There has literally been an entire community that's popped up around troubleshooting, which is great because the entire purpose of the show from the beginning was to help people solve Linux problems and use Linux on a day-to-day basis. Steve Ovens is a, is a great community member who has volunteered to come up and help us sort through email, categorize it. And then when we find repeating questions, everybody wants to know, for example, a lot of people had questions about getting started with networking. A lot of people had questions about getting started with containers. And so we can take those kinds of questions and rather than just answer them once or twice in the program, we can make an entire segment out of it and we can say, well, this person wanted to know this thing about containers and that person wanted to know that thing about containers. And if we combine all of that together and we could put together a really solid segment on containers and then you can go and listen to the back catalog of, of Asno a few weeks ago. We have that segment coming together. So what I invite you to do is send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. That's how feedback gets included in the show. We also are continuing to expand our presence on Matrix. And so Sleuth in the community has created a bot um, called Questions. And so if you are in the Geek Lab, which you can join at geeklab.ninja, you can join at parachutelive.tv. If you're on Matrix already, you can join Pound Geek Lab, colon, LinuxDelta.com. All of those will take you to the same matrix-based chat room. And you can message the questions bot, which is questions, colon, LinuxDelta.com. And I will see those questions live on the air. And of course, I will do my best to answer those questions live on the air. Your calls, though, always go to the front of the program. You can give us a call at 855-450-NO. It's 855-450-6624. Or you can join us in the interactive Jitsi room. That's available, again, also in the Geek Lab via matrix brett calls from chicago hey brett welcome to the ask noah show hi thanks for taking my call yeah thanks for calling how can we help uh i wanted to pick your brain on something um i work uh, for in-house it for a small to mid-sized business and uh you know before the pandemic hit we had probably about four or five different conference rooms in our office that would hold maybe about a dozen people or so Okay. On any given day, and people would hold meetings in person in there. Um, of course, the pandemic hits. We are almost 100% work from home and have gotten used to kind of the Google Hangouts or Zoom meeting lifestyle, um, you know, whatever the flavor of the month is for that. Sure. Um, but we're starting to consider coming back to the office, and we want to be able to kind of build for these conference rooms for a future where maybe, say, half of the cohort of a meeting is in that room and you have maybe the entire other half like six or some odd people joining uh remotely Mm -hmm. so i've been kind of looking at hardware that we can 
outfit these rooms with. And uh, I'm not sure what to go with. And I was looking for maybe recommendations, especially if you've built out something like this before, Mm -hmm. to outfit a conference room so that multiple people can be on camera. And, you know, there's some really nice systems out there that I've seen, but I worry about being locked, excuse me, locked into something that would say only work with Zoom or only work with Google Hangouts. And we wanted to be kind of vendor agnostic and future proof on that and something that would be as flexible as possible. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Absolutely you do. Um so yeah, let's uh, we'll kind of step through that a little bit. Um so I when when we have put uh, systems like this together, obviously we start with the client will oftentimes ask for a specific teleconference software. And so these days I would say 90% of our clients, if they ask us to build out a conference room or ask us to, and this is a real popular one, hey, we've got three offices or we've got a bunch of people working from home, we want uh, to have, like you said, a hybrid model where some of the people will be in the office, some of the people will join remotely, everybody can talk together. Um, In those models, what we have done, because we're up against things like, hey, we're going to start with Zoom, and we know off you know, right off the bat that depending on what their needs are and depending on what they want to grow to, um, Zoom may not always be the platform they want to be on. So we try to build that in uh, to the hardware. And so what we do is we break it up into a couple of parts. We break the video part up and we break the audio part up. For the audio part, we're typically using Audio-Technica's, they call them boundary microphones. And essentially what they are is, is is a small, flat little microphone um, that is mounted in, in a conference room, you, you would mount it on the conference table in front of each participant. Um, we've also used them just kind of as an aside. We've also put them inside of things like ice arenas and basketball courts where they're going to be broadcasting games and you want to get some of the sneaker sliding against the floor or the, the stick noise against the ice. Boundary mics work really great in those scenarios. The great thing about using something like an Audio-Technica omnidirectional boundary mic is, uh, it uses just a standard XLR interface. And so you can plug that today. You could plug that straight into something like a Focusrite Scarlet uh, Scarlet USB audio interface and plug that into a PC. And that person can use Zoom. But tomorrow, you could plug it into a mixer. And channel one might be the boundary mic. And then channel two might be a PC that's playing audio for the conference room. And channel three might be something else. Uh, and then when you get into more advanced setups, once you start to get, you know, six, you know, 30 or 40 participants, obviously at that point, you'd have so many open microphones in the room that it would become very difficult for anybody participating virtually to hear. Otherwise, it would be so much background noise. And so when you get into that level, what you end up doing is putting in uh, uh, essentially a microphone election. And so every one of those boundary microphones gets connected to a processor. That processor then does a voting system based on who's talking and it will turn that person's mic on or off. And then you can start applying some other logic. So for example, uh, oftentimes in larger corporate environments, they'll want rules set up so that when the board talks or when the, when the board chair talks, everyone else's microphones automatically muted because we're going to listen to that person. Um, And so you can set rules like that up on the voting system to say, Hey, uh, you know, this microphone's only going to be the, the one that's on. Now, it doesn't sound like you're anywhere near that scale yet, um, but purchasing my, yeah, not really. But purchasing microphones, the way that you're going about purchasing them will set you up, well, purchasing hardware, the way that you're talking about purchasing, it will set you up to do those kinds of things if you ever find yourself in that situation. Um, and so, yeah, the AKG boundary mic is, is a really good one, is kind of the go-to for we're, we're going to have a participant. We don't necessarily know 
that that participant is going to pay attention to speaking into a mic or maybe for aesthetic reasons, you don't want the microphones to be seen. Um, Again, all of those, we arrive at boundary mics. You can, there are some other microphones that we've used. I'd have to look up the exact model and they actually mount from the ceiling and they hang down. uh, And then it's like a little pencil stick and has a little ball at the end of it. And, and you, and then you can twist the ball and point it towards the, the participant to kind of get sound from that general direction. I've not been as happy with the sound I get out of those as I am from the boundary mic. I've had people tell me when we use the AKG boundary mics that, hey, that sounds almost as if that that person is talking directly into the mic. So that, you know, that would be, that's kind of where I start there. Um, as far as video goes, you have a number of different options. The, the best thing to do or the best option you have is to directly bring uh, the video into a capture device. So either using a USB capture interface, if you're trying to stay on the budget side, like a Magwell, if you have a little extra budget, um, go for something that has PCI capture. So that would be something like a uh, like the Blackmagic um, quad, uh, uh, the quad or the duo. Uh, those are all going to give you the opportunity to bring any HDMI uh, source into the the conference PC. Um, and so that allows you to swap out the camera heads that you're using. And so you can start with something very budget-like if you'd like with like a Sony Handycam. Um, and then you can scale up to uh, different different cameras or if you want to go to like a PTZ camera so you can have XY coordinates of each participant. And when that person talks, again, going back to if we had a bigger system where we're doing microphone election, then we know where that participant is and the camera can be told, hey, turn to this participant. Um you're not replacing anything on the conference PC. You're not replacing anything in the audio system. You're simply expanding or adding, and that gives you the flexibility to do that. If you wanted to go one one budget step further down, if you said, hey, I, I really just need something very basic to get up and running, um, that's when I start looking at things like the C920 or C930. Um, they're a 1080p camera that will do 30 frames per second, but it is a webcam. It's not a professional camera. And so um, the vast majority of people will see that and they won't notice the difference between a C920 or a regular camera. And I will tell you that we've even used them in broadcast environments um, to, to pick up, you know, side camera shots and stuff. People don't notice they're that good. Um, but they are limited in that, you know, with a regular camera that has SDI or HDMI, you have some flexibility on how far away from the broadcast PC or conference PC you can have the camera. In the case of a C920 or C930, you're going to be limited by the USB bus And so the entire system then has to kind of fit in one place. Now, if your conference room is set up such that you've got a big 40-inch television on one wall, conference PC goes right behind it, camera goes on top, boundary mic or or you could use shotgun mic um, goes over the top of the uh, the TV, none of that's a problem for you. It's when you start wanting to either get different camera shots or have multiple camera shots or have... uh, close-ups of, of individual participants, that's when you start, you're going to quickly reach the limit of USB devices. Right. I don't think we, we require close-ups as much as, you know, what we were kind of had in mind was more, uh, you know, one camera up at the front of the room where we already do have a TV, like you say, mm-hmm. uh, like a big, uh, I think they're 60 or 80 inch, depending on the room. Um, but some something with pan tilt zoom uh, at the front so we could preferably even... I don't know if they make like a, a hardware control panel for that separate from the computer that would drive the conference or if you, it's all software. But, um, you know, kind of just one view of the room I think would be good enough at least to start. Yeah. No, and it, so to answer your question, yes, they absolutely make 
they absolutely make PTZ cameras that can do. Um, you can just directly control them. You can control them from a from a web UI. Uh, once you start getting into piece uh, to uh, to PTZ, there is a there's a significant price hump. So like you know when you go from like a C920 or C930, you're looking at a hundred or two hundred dollars. I think the last PTZ camera we sold. Now granted, this was one that had SDI output, um, but I, I want to say it was eighteen hundred bucks. Um, and I think that one was made by PTZ Optics, if I remember. Yeah, here it is. PTZ Optics 30X SDI Gen 2 live streaming camera, uh, 1799 So there's, you know, you're going to go up quite a bit in, in price. But again, what you're getting for that money is you can put the camera in one static location and pre-program it to say participant one, participant two, participant three, and then either recall those presets manually or you can tie that into some sort of automation system to do that for you. I see. Um, so the, it sounds like if I'm understanding correctly, in order to kind of, you know, I've, I've been looking at, they have these fancy, like a Logitech system you can get with a, a touch screen that connects directly to zoom or something like that. But I, I got the impression all of those were tied pretty strongly to a particular, um, a web conferencing platform, but it sounds like what you're recommending, just to make sure I understand is you have a camera, whether it's you know multiple cameras or let's say one up at front, um, you run that, um, and you, you run your microphones with XLR for the long run mm-hmm. back to um, a USB conversion to plug into just say a commodity laptop that mm-hmm. that actually runs the the feeds. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. So like so for example in in the, in both the case of the Audio Technica mic and the uh, and the PTZ camera. Uh, the PTZ camera just spits out an HDMI video feed of, of what it's seeing, or HD, really, you're probably using SDI, but um, it just spits out a video feed. And so you've got that on a cable, and you plug that to the back of your capture card, and you can do that, again, over USB or, or preferably PCI, But uh, and then you're bringing the audio in the same way. Um, and and so from it's completely agnostic to software. It's completely agnostic to operating system. It doesn't care. It's just here's the video, and the audio is just here's the audio. And from... You know, if you had like a basic Linux box, as far as Linux is concerned, there's a V4L device that sees as a webcam and it just happens to be the input from your very high quality PTZ camera and the audio just shows up as an audio USB interface, which just happens to be the high quality audio delivered from your boundary mic. I see. And so so to make the long run between the camera and the computer, uh, obviously USB doesn't go that far, but so XLR would sounds like would certainly carry that distance and it's did i understand right it's hdmi from the camera right to a capture card so it'll depend on which camera you buy obviously but most of them support hdi hdmi and sdi sdi is essentially the same signal as hdmi but it doesn't have any of the copy protection stuff uh, built in it's essentially the professional version of the consumer variant hdmi and so it, it same idea and and the other thing is you know with hdmi typically you're buying pre-made cables with sdi you can run rg6 which is the same coax cable that your cable company uses to provide service to your cable modem and so you can go to lowe's or home depot buy a roll of rg6 run that cable put bnc ends on on the end of each one and now you've made yourself an sdi cable and so it, it cuts down considerably when you're when you're doing that at scale and, and running a number of different camera feeds um, and then you don't have to deal with the copy protection stuff so with HDMI oftentimes if you try to take it on an input source and you go from something like 
a laptop or anything that has copy protection, then you're, it'll either blank the screen out or it'll blue the screen out or do, do those kinds of things. SDI avoids all of that. And so in a lot of professional environments, they'll try to run um, SDI cable because A, it's cheaper and B, you'll have less problems with it. If you're just doing a camera, that doesn't apply to you. You can just take an S- uh, HDMI feed. One thing I have seen on cameras, I've never used it myself because I don't know how to sync it up with the audio, but I have seen cameras that will generate their own RTSP feed of the camera feed. Now, again, I'm sure there's a way to do it. I've just not looked into it enough. Um, I don't. I wouldn't know how to sync the RTSP feed from the camera up with the audio, but doing it that way would mean you'd be sending the video over the network. You wouldn't even have to run an HDMI or SDI cable. Yeah, yeah. SDI sounds pretty appealing, though, because we, we definitely have had problems with that blank out from yep. uh, the HDCP handshake that, going over long yes. distances, like you said. Yes, that's exactly what SDI is designed to avoid. And not really designed to avoid, it's just when they came out with it, they went, here's a standard for professionals, we're not going to bother with any of that stuff because they're professionals. Here's what we're going to put in consumer stuff so that people can't pirate videos. (laughs) So what do you, um, do you recommend anything in particular for the computer that actually is hosting the meeting? Like any any setups you like out there or just any old set up Linux, Windows, whatever would do it? Technically, uh, answer B. Anything that runs Linux, Windows is, I mean, really, as long as you can install Skype or Zoom, it's going to probably work. Uh, I have become a big fan of the micro optiplexes. So these are a computer that's essentially the size of an Intel Nook, but they're fully supported from Dell as an optiplex. So it's a solution that I can deliver to a client made by a company that comes with the warranty and the service and all the things, a service tag, all the things that they would expect. And then they have little mounting brackets that will cleanly mount that either to the back of a visa mount or uh, to the wall behind a TV in a conference center. And so the thing that's appealing to me about it is the PC essentially vanishes behind the TV. Uh, if aside from that, um, any 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 mini tower PC that has PCI slots will allow you to put PCI based capture uh, cards in there or PCI based audio capture cards, both of which are preferable. It will lower the amount of issues that you have. Although I will say if all you're doing is plugging in a camera and a a single microphone, these days computers are built to the point that I can do that pretty reliably with USB and not have any issues. You plug it in every once in a while, you have to juggle something and say, okay, we got to figure out like plug this one in here, plug that one in there. Okay, it works now. Leave it alone. Don't touch it. Um, And if you want to avoid that entirely, then capture everything over PCI, put PCI components in. But um yeah, the, those little micro optiplexes are great. That's good to know. I think we might um, we might lean towards, especially because we already have these in the rooms, um, a large screen laptop. Just because even though you can see what you're doing on on the big screen if you're mm-hmm. operating, people kind of like the portability of you know you can sit wherever you want, yep. lug the laptop over to you. And now you can look directly in front of you and see what you're doing. Totally. But in that case. Um, I think we'd be forced to go USB for the capture card, uh, uh, as far as I know, right? Yes, you would. But again, the USB bandwidth of of any professional capture card is going to be similar to that of a C920, assuming that you're capturing a 1080p anyway. So you're no, you're not technologically, you're not doing anything different than than putting a webcam in. You've just added, you've just given yourself the flexibility to buy a better camera and deliver better audio over those same USB plugs. That makes sense, yeah. So it's it's just the same old laptop you might use to connect, you know, with the built-in webcam and built-in microphone, but you're just, you've upgraded and externalized both the microphone 
or and the camera in this case. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. I know you've talked about Axis web cameras before. Yes. Is this a case where you think one of those might be a go-to for this? Again, so that Axis gets back into the RTSP thing. Anytime I need to get video um, where I want to see something and I want to bring that video in and do basically anything with it, I start with Axis because I've yet to find a solution. I've had people ask me for cameras that are explosion resistant. I've had customers ask me for cameras that can that are trained for license plate. And it doesn't seem to matter what they ask for. Axis has a solution for that at a price point. Um, but the the uh, I come back to in a web conferencing situation that we have to sync the audio up with the video. And so would, could you put an access camera in and would it deliver an RTSP and would that picture look absolutely fantastic? Yes, it would. Would the audio and the video be synced up? No. And could you figure out what the delay is and, and, you know, tweak that? Yes, but you'd have to have software that could do that. So for example, if I'm broadcasting over OBS, we do that all the time. So we'll put a, an access camera up, inside of the scoreboard pointing down straight down at the ice or straight down at the the court and we get this kind of really cool unique shot but in that scenario i'm not necessarily trying to sync up somebody's lips moving it just has to sound close enough that when the person bounces the ball that it sounds like the ball is being is hitting the floor at the right time and i can adjust the audio from that from that feed inside of obs if you're going into something like zoom or Hangouts, or Jitsi, I don't know that there is an audio offset to say, hey, the picture's going to arrive a couple of seconds or a couple of milliseconds after the audio hits here. I don't know where that setting would be, so I'm, I'm not sure if that, that would work in that solution. And you may find out that you plug them in and it's so quick and, and so on point that nobody really can notice um, because they're all on the same network and it's, you know, it's not going real far. That may, may very well be. I've just not done it that way. Yeah, well, I think you're right. I'd probably better stay away from any latency, uh, especially if it's going to vary induced by Correct. IP routes on that. But uh, I think it's got to be user-friendly, too. So if you start adding too many links in this chain, uh, you know, if a business user has to be the one establishing the, the meeting and getting people connected, you know, right. you can see complexity being the enemy here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, you've uh, you've given me a lot to chew on. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for your call. I appreciate it. Eight fifty five four fifty Noah. That's one eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow dot com. Tony calls from Canada. Hey, Tony. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi there, Noah. Um, I'm calling. Uh, I've been using KDE Desktop lately uh, for the last couple months, uh, based on your recommendation, and I've been loving it. And um, I came from Windows before. And I'm noticing that it's it's almost like uh, it's slightly blurry compared to Windows, and it's kind of driving me crazy. While it works and everything's good, like it almost just seems like everything's a little fuzzy. Not just like fonts, but the the whole thing. Uh, I'm on a 1080p monitor, 1920 by 1080, and I just for, I've been googling like crazy to try to figure this out. And I I don't know if maybe because I know you use KD, if you you've encountered this before. You know, I've only encountered something like that once, and in my situation, doesn't sound like this is your your case. In my situation, it was because I ha- the 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 dis- the native resolution of the display was 4K, and the and the computer that was connected to it was spitting out a 1080p image, and so then everything on the on the screen was just seemed a little blurry, just seemed a little off. But I'm guessing that's not the case, since it sounds like you were paying pretty close attention to your screen resolution. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely like I'm on 1080 native uh, screen that only does 
1080. Um, but yeah, it's, it's almost like the lines just aren't sharp. Um, and whether it's in a browser, whether it's, I, I've tried adjusting stuff on my screen. And actually, in the past, I've noticed this before, and it's kind of always been something that has kind of driven me crazy. Maybe it's just me, like, uh, not used to the way that, you know, the kind of Linux desktop is or something. Let me ask you this: what what kind of what kind of hardware are you running on? Is this a laptop, desktop? It's a it's a, one of those little mini desktops. It's a, a Dell ninety twenty. Okay, so it doesn't have like a discrete. It doesn't have a dedicated graphics card in it. Correct. Yeah, actually, every uh, probably all the ones that I'm thinking of, I they never had. They were all like work computers. Have you tried booting off of a flash drive and and seeing what the when if like you boot into the the Kubuntu installer um, on on something that's fresh that that doesn't have any settings applied anything like that is it still blurry at that point? Actually, it's a good point. I I mean, I could what I can do is I I guess I could take like a laptop and plug it in and and uh, just boot off the the live disk, right? Yeah, it would just it would be interesting to see. Yeah, it would be interesting to know is the is the problem with that specific installation or is it a problem in general? Uh, And but yeah, because yeah, that that's what I would say because particularly if it's working on the Windows side and not working on the Kubuntu side, um, my initial thought is something related to drivers. But if you tell me it's integrated graphics, then I kind of shy away from that and start to wonder if it's a configuration thing. And the fastest way to arrive there is. Let's start fresh. I wouldn't necessarily recommend you install anything, but just boot off the flash drive and see if it's cleaner. Okay. All right. Before you, know, you go, I'll before you go, one of the, one other thing I want to ask: of- what what distro are you using? Is it Kubuntu? Kubuntu. Okay. All right. Yeah, give that a shot and, and then call me back. Let me know what, how how that works out. Definitely will. Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate the call. One eight fifty five four fifty Noah. That's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at Ask Noah Show. Dot com. Your calls go to the front of the line. So our first email this hour comes in uh, from Charlie. Charlie writes in and says, Hi, Ask Noah and Linux community. Does anyone have a good detailed guide to install different AMD drivers on Linux? The AMD driver open source kernel driver, for example, the Mesa open source driver, and the copyright freeware driver. I've had War Thunder free to play recently patched and no longer works with my installed AMD driver on Fedora. I've explained my problem in detail here, and he gives a link to the Fedora project, uh, ask.fedoraproject.org forms, and says, if the driver could be saved as a file that I could simply download and double-click, that would be fantastic, e.g. like an app image or an RPM. Thanks in advance, Charlie. So we'll throw that out there. If somebody has advice for Charlie, please write in at live at, at asknoahshow.com or take a look at the link to his problem uh, that'll be linked for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. David from Arkansas writes in and says, Hey, Noah, long-time caller, first-time listener. I think you got that backwards. For years, I've used Google Voice to provide a single phone number that can route calls or texts to my desktop, my laptop, tablet, matrix, home server, wherever, whatever phone I happen to be carrying. Along with wanting to de-Googleify my life, Google is turning off SMS forwarding this July. My questions, where can I go to replace Google Voice? And can I port my Google Voice number to that service? Thanks in advance, David. So, David, you you have hit on something that I have been, I've just, I'm in, the, I'm in this boat too. I really am. I have this dream 
uh, after play, I, I started playing with Matrix to kind of get my head wrapped around what its capabilities were. And soon after doing that, I said, okay, this is potentially a communications platform that could work for me because I'm, I'm unique in that I exist in so many different circles. I have to work at a radio station. I have to, uh, I work with a bunch of different clients. Then I have my internal communication that happens with my company. And I have this podcast that I started a few years ago and the community that's built up around that. And so we've got producers and people that help out with the show. All of those people need my attention in varying different times, varying different degrees. And so on one hand, I don't want to have to jump between platforms to communicate with all of these people. On the other hand, I also need to be able to shut certain people out during certain parts of the day and concentrate on different, you know, areas and focuses of, of life. And matrix is the only communication platform I've found that can do those things. The one missing link is this every, for the most part, you know, any, any of my teams are, are, they're going to be on matrix if they want to communicate, if they want to work, that's kind of the way that goes. But then you always have the clients or the one offers that, Hey, what's your number? I want to send you a text. Well, that's problematic for me for a couple of reasons. First of all, it ties me to a physical device and I hate being tied to a physical device because if there's one thing I can count on, it's I'm going to lose stuff. I'm in a thousand different places, a thousand different times of the day. And so leaving a phone somewhere, forgetting a phone or having a phone break happens fairly frequently. And it's something that I just have to expect. And so Again, in the matrix world, that's avoided because like you, I can deliver those messages to any device I happen to be using. Work calls. Thanks to 3CX and the fine folks over at Vox Telesis, anybody that calls me, those calls get delivered to whatever IP address I happen to be on. And then I, my second problem, which is I live in Grand Forks, North Dakota, and that means that a lot of our service area is on the outskirts of North Dakota. Now, you may have never been to North Dakota, so maybe you don't understand, but if I drive, it's it's 70 miles to the next city, uh, to the next reasonably sized city. It's 300 miles to the nearest met major metropolitan area. And so if you live in Seattle or San Francisco, you know, or Dallas, you might go to Best Buy and they're closed or don't have the thing that you need. And you drive 20, 30 minutes and you go to another one and they do have it. For me, it's like a five and a half hour drive to get to the nearest Best Buy, right? And so unsurprisingly, because things are so spaced out, there's not a lot of cell phone coverage in between those cities. And so if I wind up in an area that doesn't have very good cell phone coverage, oftentimes I'm, I, I, I just, I don't have communication. And so the way that I've chosen to solve that is by carrying multiple phones on multiple different carriers so that no matter where I am, Hey, can I get an IP connection? Yes, I can. It doesn't hurt. The fact that we manage networks means that almost always, once I get to my destination, I'll not only have network access, I'll probably be the one setting it up, right? And now, thanks to things like Starlink, it means that, well, anywhere I have my travel trailer, I have a, a connection to the world. But that only works if all of the messages come through the internet, which SMS decidedly does not. Additionally, there are all sorts of security implications that get into SMS, and then when you start getting into group texting, which actually has to go over MMS, it gets even more complicated. Like you, I have used Google Voice to bridge that gap for a long time. And for a long time, Google Voice has worked very well. Like you, I also am very interested in getting off of Google. But frankly, I'm not leaving what is a working solution today until I have a better working solution tomorrow. So I will tell you where I'm at in that process. This is not a perfect solution, but here are some of the roads that I've tried and here's what I found to be the best solution so far. The first thing I have set as my rule is that at the end of the day, 
all of these messages are somehow going to make their way into Matrix. Because once I get them into the Matrix ecosystem, I can get them anywhere. I can have my work account. I can get them from my Kernel Linux community account. I can get them from my personal account with my family. I can watch those chats from anywhere. But for that to work, the messages ultimately, their ultimate destination has to be a matrix room of some sort. So the fastest way to get there is to download an app called SMS Matrix. And that was the first thing I did. I got it off of F-Droid. Now, the good news is that it works flawlessly. You set it up, you give it a username and a password for your matrix server, you give it the username you want it to deliver the SMS messages to, and Bob's your uncle, when a message comes in and hits the local phone, it just scrapes that message off of the phone's messaging app and sends it on to matrix. The downside, that for, for a while when I had that running, it meant I had a dedicated phone with a, with a SIM card that just sat inside of a little holder inside of our rack room uh, because it had to be on 24-7 and it had to be running 24-7 and had to run the software 24-7. And when it stopped, I had to drive all the way over to the office and restart it. So it was better than nothing, but it really was nowhere near being able to replace Google Voice. Iteration number two, there is a app bridge for Twilio, which is a service that allow, essentially it is, it is a programmer's dream for SMS and voice calls. And so what it allows me to do is take a text message and receive it over matrix. Now iteration two was better than iteration one because at least I could restart all the bridge and all of that stuff remotely. And it was all happening on a server, which was kind of nice because it happened in a data center, but Twilio doesn't support group messaging and doesn't support MMS uh, group messaging. So that's a problem when you get a group message, I either don't get it or even worse, I get the group message but it comes from the original sender and I don't realize it's a group message and then I'm only replying to the sender, which confuses and irritates the sender because why didn't you just respond to the, it just creates problems. So iteration two was better, but still not great. I'm on iteration three and iteration three just about has it. It's a service called jmp.chat and jmp.chat gives you a real phone number that is yours for calling and texting. It includes group and picture messages. So this was an advancement from, from level two, right? It works from all devices at once because underneath they're using SIP and Jabber. So this is an XMPP service, right? And so you can use any XMPP client you want. And they, they, they have a service that they have partnered with, um, like chat box or something like that. And so you get a nice little web UI where you can receive your text messages uh, and send text messages, and when you respond, it goes to the groups, all the things, right? I then took a little bit further, because again, like I say, at the end of the day, if it's not delivering those messages into Matrix, it's not quite there yet. Um, but you could just sign up for a jmp.chat and use it as a drop-in replacement for Hangouts, and I think that probably answers your question. If you want to take it one step further, though, and I do, I am currently exploring uh, a, a bridge for Matrix called Bifrost. Now, Bifrost is a generic bridge uh, that is designed to bridge Matrix to other services, but it has excellent support and was really kind of almost designed around bridging XMPP, which is what JMP.chat uses underneath. So it, and, and it does that without, uh, it, it does that extraordinarily simply, by the way. Um, so the, the general process is you sign up for a, an account at jmp.chat, you set up the Bifrost matrix bridge, and so as a text message comes in, it hits jmp.chat, gets sent over XMPP to the Bifrost bridge. Bifrost bridge then deposits that SMS message into a matrix room where I can then read it and respond. 
Now, it works, but there are a couple of hangups. The first drawback is there is a delay. And so from the time that I send it, whereas you would send an SMS, you would wait two, three seconds, it would show up on the other phone. Now it's you send an SMS, you wait, I see it come in on jmp.chat, then you wait, then I see it get delivered to the matrix bridge. And so there is a, there is an increased delay. And you know, when somebody's saying, Hey, I'll meet you at dinner at six tomorrow, that's not a problem. When you're trying to go back and forth, I quickly start to notice that, oh, right, and the delay is on my end. And, of course, the other person just assumes that I'm sitting there staring at my phone and waiting to reply because, obviously, I am replying, but there's this, like, six to ten second in between. I don't know. It's not perfect. The other thing that is not ideal, I guess you could say, when I reply to group messages, again, I'm back to sometimes it will reply back to that first person rather than responding to the group text. So I haven't gotten all of the bugs worked out, but I'm actively working on this. Now, I will put a plea out there to the community. Uh, right now, I am paying my developers at ultaspeed.com to try to solve this problem because we know that customers are going to want to reach out to us via SMS. We also know that it's our responsibility to clients to make uh, doing business with Ultaspeed as frictionless as possible. That's what small business owners do. They try to reduce the friction to letting customers uh, work with them. So we have a workflow. We have a communication system. All of that's based on Matrix. And so that's the end goal. Um all of the technology exists to do this. It's just somebody has to put all the pieces together. Now, if you listen last week to the interview that we did with Matthew Hodgson, uh, he says that this is not a high priority to them per se because SMS is frankly going away and dying. And the whole idea of Matrix is to, in fact, get rid of inferior messaging systems and go to something that is decentralized and encrypted and all the things. But... They have a working SMS bridge, and it will soon be available, they believe, for EMS customers. So it may be that in just a few months, uh, you can just pay a few bucks, and EMS will do this for you. And you better believe, if that happens, I'll be the first one in line to take advantage of that. one 855 that's 855-450-6624, the email, live at show.com. You are on Ask Noah. Good afternoon. Hi, Noah. Uh, this is Jared. Um, I had a question for you. Um, I have a laptop that's I'm dual booting with uh, Windows and Ubuntu. I installed Windows first, and I was trying to resize the Windows partition, but I'm kind of at a loss making it smaller because I've, I've read, read that you're supposed to um, use like the built-in Windows uh, partition manager. That way you don't mess anything up um do you have any advice for like shrinking that down without uh corrupting my system you know i have had very poor luck in shrinking a drive uh, expanding one no problem migrating from a drive to a larger drive no problem but uh i have had terrible luck trying to shrink drives there is a um there is a is it parted magic that does this there 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 is a there is a tool that i have that i've gotten to yeah it is parted magic i think is what i've used um and i've had luck getting that to work but i will tell you that in a couple of cases i've had it just entirely blue screen um so if you go that route my strong suggestion in fact i would story, i would implore you in the strongest possible way to download Clonezilla, make an, make a backup image of your drive first, then go monkeying around with trying to resize that drive and and, and bring the drive size down, um, because, yeah, going smaller is is uh, is challenging. Let's put it that way. Yep. 
Okay, thank you. Do you know if there's anything like, because uh, you got me into uh, Time Shift, I remember you talking about it, and I've been using that. It's lovely. Okay. Do you, know, do you or anyone in the community know of anything like that for uh, Windows? Um, I don't. However, I want to say that the built-in backup tool in Windows 10 does deltas, so you could you could potentially it's not going to have the nice UI, but you, I think you if you just if you if you you know open the start menu and just type up backups and look at the default backup utility, I believe it has the option to back up uh, you know to an external storage thing and then just do a delta each time so you can roll back to any point in between. Okay, cool. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Anything else? Give me a call back. All right. Sounds good. Take care. Yeah, you too. 855-450-NO. That's one 855 450 The email, live at com. Your calls go to the front of the line. Our third email comes in today from Skyler. Skyler writes in and says, Hello, Noah. In episode 235, you mentioned wanting to print postage labels with your Zebra thermal printer, but you weren't sure if there was a special requirement. I've contracted for the post office and run a Linux-powered, I might add, shipping company, so I can tell you that you can print postage on any paper you want. The only catch for postage stamps that go on a letter is the sorting machines look for a special UV ink of a particular barcode along the top edge called a FIMD. If your mail doesn't have either, it'll get kicked out of the machine and a human will look at it to determine if it's underpaid. The reason there's no extra security for printing shipping labels is the 2D data matrix or PDF 417 barcode on the label. It includes a cryptographic signature signed by UPS's private key. USPS's private key, excuse me, proving that the postage was paid. If you want to print shipping labels, EasyPost is a great option that I use all of the time. They have a well-documented REST API for comparing rates, purchasing labels, and tracking packages. The API gives you a high-resolution PNG labels to work with, and they have the lowest rates available with no subscription fees. Unlike all of the other options, they just connect to UPS FedEx accounts to print labels on those carriers too, not just USPS. They have API libraries for most programming languages available on GitHub. Hope this helps. Skylar. And Skylar, believe me, it helps. We're looking into it. And if there's anybody else out there that's looking to do switch or um, switching, looking to do shipping, uh, that, that is certainly the way to go. Jordan writes in and says, hi, Noah. Thanks for your help. I have found a solution for connecting to the right Wi-Fi network, even while the signal is weak. Thanks for mentioning RSSI. When researching that, I came across the Arch Wiki. That, by default, RPA supplicate only switches access points if the signal to the current access point is lost. You may be interested in the WPS supplicate's BG scan scanning, which can be used to increase the scan frequency and switch to a better access point. I haven't figured out if Network Manager exposes a similar option, but it should be possible to change the setting directly in WPA Supplicate. This setting doesn't seem to help me because the default setting is already very sticky by default. It already tries very hard to stick to the access point you set it to at first, which is what I want. While researching RSSI, I found that WPA, WPA Supplicant and Network Manager do have a priority setting that you can use to prefer certain networks. I tried to do something fancy with this, but it seems that in Network Manager, the priority doesn't matter. If you're already connected to a network, it will not switch to a different network just because the priority is higher. Today, I found a very simple solution using Network Manager's connection.autoconnect setting. In the GNOME GUI Wi-Fi settings, it's called Connect Automatically. I simply turn auto-connecting on for the one network that I want to use and turn it off for all of their networks. 
I was prepared to write a script to build an advanced system that is tolerant to this environment, but in the end, taking this checkbox is good enough. Thanks for your help. I learned a lot. Jordan. And thanks, Jordan, for not only writing back in and letting me know what the end result of your problem was, but also linking to all of these things, the, the ArchWiki and the, the Ask Ubuntu's. We'll have all of those linked in the podcast show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our fifth email comes in today from Joel. Joel writes in and says, hey, Noah, I've been browsing around eBay for a Linux test device. I'm interested in getting a low-powered convertible, deliberating between getting an Atom Cherry Trail or a Core M processor for efficiency. What do you recommend? I'm looking at the detached Latitude 2-in-1s for ease of repair and upgradability. Thanks in advance, Joel. So I'll be honest with you, Joel. I don't know a lot about those two processors and it would obviously depend on what specifically you're trying to do, what your expectations are of that machine. But I will tell you this, those Dell's two-in-ones are absolutely fantastic. And I have seen people, I, don't, I haven't done it myself, but I have seen other people at Linux conferences and so on and so forth using those with Linux installed as their only operating system. Dell typically has very good support for uh, for Linux and having all of the hardware things work out of the box. So if, you're, if your inclination is to go with a detachable latitude, I would probably second... Uh, that inclination. Our pick of the week this week is Rustdesk. Now, Rustdesk is an open source, what aims to be an open source ripoff of TeamViewer. And so it's an open source remote desktop software uh, written in Rust. But looking at the screen, uh, at the screen caps of it, it very much resembles desktop in that you get an ID and a password. If you want to control a partner's remote desktop, it just prompts you for the pin or the, the the code and you type that in type in the password and it allows you to connect to their machine then it adds those into a recent sessions thing so if you want to reconnect to those machines it's very easy to do so includes things like transferring files back and forth and can be entirely self-hosted or they have a public server up available that you can use to do the you know the brokering the proxying of the connections in between uh the supportee and the supporter as it were um, you can host it on Docker. You can build it yourself. They have packages available for all of the major distributions. The code is available up on GitHub, and the software is called Rustdesk. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. Again, podcast.asknoahshow.com. If you're looking for remote desktop solutions, this might be one you'd want to check out. We are still using Simple Help for all of our day-to-day -day stuff at AltaSpeed, but I will tell you we continue to search for newer stuff, especially when it's open source, because at this at our company, if it's not open source, then it's really just kind of a placeholder. Our gadget of the week this week is Time Trace. Time Trace is a CLI simple time tracking uh, utility, and what is really appealing to me is so it starts on the fact that it allows you to create projects and allows you to uh, create project modules, and then supports things like editing a project, tracking the time, deleting a project, reverting a project, um, getting a status to see how much time has been sent on, uh, spent on the project, and those kinds of things. But what really interests me about this project is how it could potentially be used in a, a larger system. The time trace status command uh, can output the status as JSON or, or a custom format. And so what really I take away from this is the ability to tie it to another system and have and have uh, have time trace do the actual tracking of the time and maybe interface with it either from a web UI, 
from uh, controlling it from other software like OS Ticket or Matrix, and then having that information logged on the back end and then just spit out uh, and then import it. Um, so all of those things make this a very fascinating project, something I want to look into more. I played with it a little bit uh, over the past week. It just kind of a, hey, I'm going to see if I can you know, keep track of, of, you know, various different projects and what I'm doing for clients and then see how that works out. And I don't currently have a tool doing that. And so this kind of fits the bill. It's CLI based. And the fact that I can grow with it makes, uh, makes me really happy to be using it. Rocky Linux 8.4 has uh, become available and has gone general availability. So the Rocky Enterprise Software Foundation uh, has announced the general availability of Rocky Linux 8.4. Now, a quick summation, if you've not followed this, Rocky Linux is the replacement for CentOS. When CentOS uh, uh, was discontinued and it went to CentOS Stream, and that was going to be Red Hat's uh, version of it, and that's going to track one point release ahead of Red Hat. Uh, Greg Kutzner came forward and said, hey, you know what? I was one of the guys that worked on the original CentOS team, and I think that there is still value and reason to recompile Red Hat code and have a bug-for-bug -bug compatible version with Red Hat, and so Rocky Linux was born. Uh, Rocky Linux 8.4 is out. We had it. We have it running on a Dell R710, uh, or at least tried to ha get it running on a Dell R710. I guess we're having it running on a different machine because we found out that the 710 no longer uh, 8 CentOS 8 will no longer support the storage arrays on on the the R710, and so uh, we've moved on to a different platform. But they release container images. They have Docker Hub. They have uh, offerings on Amazon Web Services, Google Cloud Platform. And so what stood out to me is anybody can go and say, I'm going to take this code, I'm going to recompile it, I'm going to ship it out. That's not what you want to see in a project. That Anybody can do that. Where the value in a project is, is when updates are rolled out from Red Hat, are they rolled out immediately or very quickly to the software that you're using? Are they, do they come quickly to Rocky Linux? And what Greg has consistently said was, Look, it took us some time. It took us months, actually, to get all of the infrastructure up and running so that we could do the work of recompiling the source code and then shipping it under a different name. That part is the easy part. The hard part is getting all of the infrastructure up in place so that we can ship updates quickly and so that we can be confident that this has been tested and it can work in a production environment that you can rely on with mission-critical data. And so Greg has done that. He's done his due diligence, and his team is, ha has worked very hard to get all of the infrastructure in place, and now Rocky Linux 8.4 is out. So I'd invite you to take a look at that. If you find bugs or issues, those should be reported at Bugzilla. We'll have a link for all of that in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. On Thursday, Congressman Joseph Morrell, uh, a Democrat from New York, filed a national right to repair legislation with Congress. Now, here's the thing. This has been gaining more and more traction. Individual states inside of the United States have been pushing for a right to repair. If you're not familiar with what right to repair is, it's essentially asking the government to come and, and defend a person's right to repair a device that has been damaged without having to send that device back to the manufacturer. And so when you purchase an iPhone 8 or an iPhone 9, my grandfather would roll over in his grave if I told him there were people in the world that spent $1,000 on a device and they can't change the battery in it. I mean, that just would really, it would, it would just shock an entire generation of people. The amount of e-waste that is generated because a, a, a $200 screen gets cracked or a $300 screen gets cracked 
and you call the manufacturer up and say, hey, I want you to fix this. And they say it's going to be hundreds of dollars. And you say, well, it's just probably cheaper for me to go buy a new phone. Well, maybe it is, but maybe it wouldn't be if those parts were just available and you could do the repair yourself. People want to fix their own stuff. They don't want to be wasteful. They don't want to throw those things out. They don't want to have to spend their money to buy a replacement when there was nothing wrong with the old one, save a part was damaged. And that scales not just from iPhones. It scales up to things like tractors. One of the first episodes that we ever did on Ask Noah focused on the right to repair for John Deere tractors. And part of the problem that, that, that farmers face is that when they purchase a tractor, the software that is loaded on the tractor they don't have any control over it and they don't have any say in it. And and so when something breaks, they have to take that tractor back to the manufacturer in order to get a part fixed or get a software update or whatever the repair is. And that causes a number of problems because first of all, the farmer doesn't want his tractor in the shop. He wants it in his field. Second of all, if you've ever met a farmer or been to a farm and I've met plenty, there is no one in the world better at redneck engineering a solution or figuring out how to fix a problem. So when you intentionally prevent them from doing that, it frustrates them. It slows down their business of farming. Oh, by the way, their tractor gets taken out of the field. And it didn't necessarily have to be that way. I went to a tractor pull. That's the kind of thing we do around here for fun. Went to a tractor pull and tasted the coffee. I was like, this is some of the best coffee I've ever had in my life. How did you make, you know, it's not Starbucks. I know that. How did you make this coffee? And it was a farmer had taken an old water heater and he cleaned out the inside and rigged it into a gigantic coffee machine. And that's just the kind of stuff that farmers can do. And this is the kind of stuff that farmers are now being prevented doing with their newest tractors and all sorts of other electronics and devices that that come onto the scene. Now, individual states have tried to address this and indeed have been somewhat successful in introducing and passing legislation for the right to repair. But nobody has done this at a national level. And so now that has happened. And so if you don't want to pay $400 to replace your iPhone when a cheap fix would solve all of your problems, then this issue affects you. Uh, and so I would ask that we support this kind of legislation. Obviously, you know, just introducing it as step one, it's got a long way to go. But I, I have a lot of hope that this is going to move forward. And people like Lewis Rossman, who have been outspoken about this since day one and have built really his entire business on fixing things that the manufacturer doesn't want to fix that can be fixed, that he's smart enough to fix. And he talks very candidly about how he runs into problems, uh, finding the tools that he needs to fix this stuff, finding the documentation that he needs to fix this stuff, getting support from the companies to fix this stuff or actively being harassed by them for doing so. This is a major problem in the tech space, and we, it's one that we should want to solve. If, if you believe what I'm telling you when I say that you should own your technology, then that should absolutely extend to fixing your technology when it breaks. You should understand how it works. You should want to understand how it works. You should want to understand where the parts are and how to fix them. And if you don't want to fix it or it isn't worth your time or money, that's a decision that you should be making, and it shouldn't be artificially – you shouldn't be artificially pushed into that – because a company has a vested interest in you buying the newest thing with planned obsolescence. There's a new HTTP spec being proposed. This new HTTP spec proposal is the elimination of the obnoxious cookie banner. So you may have noticed 
that since the passing in 2018 of the EU's general data protection regulation, there's now a banner that pops up on almost all websites that says, hey, do you want to accept all cookies or do you want to go through this complicated menu to select only the essential ones? Now, if you're a masochist like I am, but a privacy respecting masochist, then you go through and click through all of those things to say, no, I just want the strictly necessary cookies. You'd be amazed at when they say, well, proper performance of the site. No, actually, your site works just fine with the essentials. There's a new proposed spec for HTTP that is going to start to communicate those preferences right from the browser. And so the proposed standard enables two methods of automating those preferences. One is server side, and then one is happening on the website itself. And this is being known as ADPC, or Advanced Data Protection. And essentially, what it's doing is the web server links to a consent file and then that communicates the response. The I'll leave it here by saying, because I'm running out of time, that the request is, is not a command. You can't force people to respect your privacy, but it's a, a more convenient way to request it. And so hopefully that will move forward and that will be the future of the web. Hey, the music in my ears means we're out of time. You can get more at asknoahshow.com, podcast.asknoahshow.com, get the entire backlog and the catalog. We'll see you back here next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central.